Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. So we are recording this on the afternoon of Thursday, July the 4th. It has been a uh, continues to 2020 continues to be a year that is very eventful. So in the past few days, uh, the country has been kind of reeling from uh, the controversial death of George Floyd and the resulting civil unrest. Uh, there's been a lot of protests. Uh, there've been there's been riots and looting, uh, there's been uh, tweets, uh, there's been presidential speeches, lots of stuff going on. But we wanted to focus, you know, kind of on some of the, the policy issues that are involved here, uh, just a lot, of, a lot of different other issues. So in order to talk about that, uh, we have back on the program uh, our, one of our very first guests, a repeat guest, friend of the show, Derek Cohen, uh, who is the director of Right on Crime and the Center for Effective Justice at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. So Derek, first of all, welcome back. Great to be here. So you, maybe for all of our new listeners, perhaps you could give just a little bit of background on what is Right on Crime and you know what, what is it that you focus on in your work? Certainly. Well, Red on Crime formally uh, was established in 2010. Since 2005, the Texas Public Policy Foundation had been working on uh, criminal justice reform, but from a conservative perspective. In other words, focusing on issues of uh, you know proper fiscal stewardship, on public safety above all else, on victim restoration, things that are generally important to conservatives. Um, still, though, we found ourselves in, in many situations advocating for similar uh, policies or even the same policies as, as some folks, uh, you know, that were either in the center or in few, in few examples on the left. Um, and so when we were doing that in the state in 2005, 2007, 2009, these were all uh, legislative sessions that were very, very successful and kind of put Texas on this path to being one of the leaders in criminal justice reform. Now, when it went national in 2010, that's when folks started signing on into our signatory program, people like Rick Perry, uh, Newt Gingrich, people who understand that even um, the most well-intentioned criminal justice system doesn't always get it right. And not only that, should not be given a blank check of taxpayer money in order to do so. So just taking that scrutinous look at how we are actually protecting our uh, protecting our communities, how we are providing for public safety, you know, because at the end of the day, the criminal justice system is another apparatus of the government. Let's talk about the issues of um, police brutality, police misconduct. This is not you know, the, the, the George Floyd situation is kind of the latest of a long string of uh, famous examples in recent years. Uh, it's a little different in some ways uh, than some of them. One, you know, for one reason, a lot of the major incidents that people think about involved police shootings. This, of course, is not a shooting, uh, but a police death or a death uh, 
in police custody or at police hands, however you want to phrase that. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of issues that are involved there, but um, you have certainly people who die at the hands of police. Um, and that's something that we would like to try and uh, avoid or minimize uh, to the extent that's possible. So what are some things that could be done in order to deal with that problem? Well, good thing you start off with a nice, easy, uh, <laughs> yeah. with a succinct answer to it. Uh, well, first and foremost, I think a lot of the discussion right now is circle is centered around qualified immunity, and you know that's I don't think as well understood even in folk even by some folks in the advocacy community uh, as um, yeah as maybe a, yeah why don't you go ahead and uh, maybe explain what qualified immunity is, uh, or I could do it, but, but I know you could do it. Uh, is this a way of you getting me to do it because you forgot to do your homework, Josiah? No, I mean, I, I, it's from law school, you know, if you, uh, if a police officer or it's not just police officer, but mostly police officers, uh, if you violate someone's constitutional rights, there is a federal law, uh, 42 USC, 1983, uh, which I actually used to litigate when I practiced law, that you can sue uh, the state for a violation of your constitutional rights. And uh, if you win, you know, you have the ability to get damages and other things. And qualified immunity is a doctrine that developed basically in the 70s and 80s, I believe. Uh, it was a period kind of after, you know, in the, in the 1960s, you had a big, uh, broadening of interpretations of constitutional protections involving criminal justice for the Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, that sort of thing. And so you had a lot of situations where people were suing the police and the courts were saying, yes, you know, the people's constitutional rights were violated. Um, but uh, the courts, you know, th there was also a sense that in some of these cases, at least, uh, it was a little unfair to say, well, you know, we're just going to establish this new interpretation of what the Fourth Amendment means or what the Fifth Amendment means. And to, to do that and then to hold police officers or other government officials liable for that. Um, and so the doctrine of qualified immunity was kind of established to deal with that, where basically uh, if a interpretation of the Constitution was new, right? So it hadn't. Pre if the question involved hadn't previously been decided, then the officers would not be liable, even if their conduct was found to be unconstitutional. And mm. so that's why it's qualified immunity. Now, in practice, you could say that uh, uh, very often qualified immunity turns out to be closer to absolute immunity because if you're going to have a court case, it's going to be new to some degree, what's happening. And so courts have been very broad in, in terms of deciding that qualified immunity applies, even in, you, know, the, you can point to examples of where probably the officers, if they had reflected on it, might have had reason to think that their conduct was actually not legal. So uh, how, how was that a, as an explanation? That, actually, that was very good. And I think that I deserve credit for being one of the uh, one of the better guests to host the show. Uh, <laughs> 
but 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 the one thing I would that, that actually all just all kidding aside, Josiah, that was a very fulsome explanation. And I want to underline a couple things that you said there. The most important thing being the clearly established law component. And so that essentially was the way it was interpreted, is that there, you needed to have that violation where and, and again, the way it's been ruled has been a little too cookie cutter to your point. Uh, meaning that if it doesn't exactly comport with a previous decision, um, that it would that immunity would attach. That clearly established law is t what tends to actually trip a lot of folks up. Because look at these cases; these cases involve multiple people, multiple actions, multiple locations, and all these things make this infinitely complex. And each case, especially cases that tend to have horrific outcomes, like the George Floyd case. Tend to be tend to redound to an N of one, right? And so one of the issues that we tend to have with this uh, way it's particularly applied is that unless you have that slam dunk, that immunity, and again, this is a civil immunity, you know, tends to actually apply. Now, this is how how we got there was a little, you know, it, it, it's important, but it's not uh, it's not terribly important because they essentially said the, the court essentially found that, you know, there was a good faith immunity that preexisted, even if it was, you know, fallen into disuse, you know, there essentially is this good faith. So a person acting under what their rational understanding of the law to be and performing their duties properly under the color of law, we're not going to be able to just be, you know, sued willy nilly. However, they extrapolated that out or that, uh, that understanding basically to what we now know as, as qualified immunity. And qualified immunity in and of itself, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't think it's the I, I don't think it's the linchpin on all the issues that we have now. Is it an important part of reform? Yes. Uh, do we all agree that no government or most government officials should have any form of immunity? Uh, yes. But it doesn't answer some of the nuanced things of how do we actually define those parameters around policing? And that's some of the things, the discussions that are going on right now. I also wanted to just emphasize, in case it's not clear for people, that qualified immunity has to do with uh, liability for civil damages in a civil lawsuit. It does not apply to criminal liability. If a if a police officer, as in as in this case, is charged, you know, uh, with second degree murder or you know excessive force, what, any sort of criminal issue. Uh, that's not a qualified immunity issue, right? It, you know, bi violating the Constitution actually is not a crime. <laughs> uh, it, it's a it's a it's a civil matter, and so I just want to I just want to make clear that you know because people are talking about oh we need you know the problem here is qualified immunity we need to reform or get rid of qualified immunity, uh, which is a totally legit discussion to have. But qualified immunity, I just want to make clear does not prevent cops from being prosecuted for uh, police brutality, excessive force, wrongful shootings, any of that sort of stuff. Yes, and it also doesn't pr uh, protect cops from being individually liable should somebody find a particular claim uh, of that uh, clearly established law violation being justiciable. Right. You know, you can sue for anything, and I think that we see some of the examples that have come out here. So the question we get to then is what are we going to do about qualified immunity? And here's where some of the folks on the conservative reform side kind of separate ways from folks on some of the more libertarian uh, reform side. I think I, I, got it, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I think we can all say 
that uh, qualified immunity in and of itself is repugnant. You know, no government official or government agency should not be held liable, especially, especially if they violate your constitutional rights. Um, whether we're in the civil realm or the criminal realm, we can have those discussions, but there should not be any form of, uh, I, I feel comfortable calling this at this case, any form of blanket immunity, which essentially qualified immunity in this case oftentimes redounds to. And so you have folks uh, like Clark Neely at the Cato Institute, uh, folks uh, in other um, in other think tanks saying that we should just abolish qualified immunity. And that's actually an argument I'm very sympathetic with. The one problem that I find with it, though, is that if we don't actually return to have a codified standard of what a good faith exception looks like, then we are going to basically be back where I don't say back where, but where people acting in good faith, acting under the color of law can basically be subject to all sorts of lawsuit campaigns. And, you know, outside of vexatious uh, litigant designation, there would be no way to stop any sort of like activist uh, trial bar from basically rendering all of civic governance moot. I saw you tweet about this the other day um, about the idea of reform on the good faith defense. And Justin Amash just um, uh, sponsored a bill that I think the text of it just came out. And it's actually very simple. There's only a few pages to it. And he's, I guess the simple focus of the bill is to eliminate the good faith defense in the sense of if you have violated a constitutional right, you can't then rely on, well, I thought that I was applying the law. You Essentially, you're holding the, the police officer accountable if this were to become the law. You'd be holding the police officer accountable for violating rights and then any damages that are caused once you do that, whether or not the police officer thought that he was within his proper authority. What do you think of an approach like that? Unfortunately, I have not seen this. Um, I just looked it up. It looks like it dropped about an hour ago. I'd be, I was talking to my friend, Filipino uh, Esposito at the Due Process Institute about this. Essentially, I think the problem of getting rid of the good faith defense, and keep in mind, a good faith defense would not apply in cases such as, a good faith defense would not apply in the George Floyd case, not, not right. at all. But the problem, of course, is just by getting rid of that good faith offense, all you're left then is with qualified immunity writ large. And, mm -hmm. you know, again, my, and this is, I said in my uh, tweet thread, what I would, how I would approach this is I would say that from here on out, qualified immunity is a thing in the past. There is nobody that is blanket, you know, nobody or no entity that is blanket uh, immune from uh, prosecution under section 1983. However, I would then go and establish a doctrine of immunity with mm -hmm. pretty re with pretty limited but still definable guidelines on what actually would be justiciable in a civil claim against a government actor acting under the color of law and that would be an element that would need to be uh, proven or an agency acting collectively and i think that that would be the better way forward and again this is an area where i think that if you look at uh, where we and where the Cato Institute come down, we're overlapping about 95%. You know, our Venn circles are 95% overlap. Right. But those five, that 5% is a very significant 5% with massive ramifications on how society is going to operate, how civil uh, law enforcement is going to operate. And so that is things that we need to make sure we're getting right and we're having the debate on the front. 
one of the things I like about this type of approach is this type of, you know, like if this were to become the law, this would be almost sort of like Miranda rights in the sense of everybody would know what they are in the sense of everybody could sort of, you know, you know, you're watching a police show. You can state the Miranda rights with, you know, because you've heard it so many times. And I think the same type of thing might happen where if there were clear standards those bystanders that are, you know, if they're standing there watching an arrest and they see that it's starting to go wrong, they would be able to point out to the police officers, you're in violation of this statute. You're doing this. You can see this person's in distress. You're risking his life. You, you, you and you are all going to be held accountable. And I think that that would at least be a way to reinforce that sort of in real time, in progress, if you will, to the police officers, like you're being watched and you've been put on notice. I think there would be some real value to that. It would, you know, in some sense, it would, it would hold the police accountable in real time. Absolutely. And, but the, the thing is, is we do not need to basically choose between, and this is the point that I'm trying to make is we do not need to choose between this uh, dichotomy of basically the wild West. The police can do absolutely mm-hmm. whatever they want without any sort of civil liability exposure versus they need to be constantly, um, on notice. And I had, I had a good conversation with uh, some of the folks in our legal center here about this. And there's this presupposition that the way, even case law that has risen to the Supreme Court, there is this presupposition that everything is a bright line and that the X behavior is uh, allowable, Y behavior is not. When in truth, keep in mind what I said earlier about the complexity of all these cases. And eventually you come to, with each case being an N of one, you're going to have to relitigate these particular issues here. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying, again, that anyone should have immunity from that litigation um, or no, expo- no civil exposure at all to that. But what we should say is if it is clearly slam dunk, able to be established that this person was not only acting in good faith, but under the color of law, following the precedent of the time, all these different things that we would consider uh, to be, you know, that we would not consider kneeling on somebody's neck to be, but we would consider routine policing to be. That I, that is what I think is a more nuanced and thoughtful approach than either uh, strict liability or uh, uh, even qualified immunity. Beyond, like I think you said, you know, you didn't use these words in particular, but basically you suggested that uh, reform of qualified immunity is not going to be a silver bullet that's going to solve all these policing issues. What are some of the other items that would be on your agenda? that you'd want to see to actually have reform uh, when it comes to police brutality? Uh, I will actually use qualified immunity as a springboard on this. So, and the big reason why I think qualified immunity, no matter where we come down on the minutia of the policy is not a silver bullet. It's probably not even a copper bullet. I don't know if that's actually a thing, but you can, you know, use context clues to justify or to understand what I mean. I don't think qualified immunity will do that much because what we essentially have is we have this very long attenuated process where if a a police officer does something horrific, uh, basically murdering a man by kneeling on their neck, something like that, if they do that, yes, they are shielded from civil liability, obviously not shielded from criminal liability as as demonstrated in the current case, but let's look at that work its way through and let's say that there was no criminal violation. Let's just uh, presuppose that. So... What would happen to the officer there is that they would then be sued in a civil court, probably of that particular jurisdiction. Now, what would happen is they would be represented by a city's attorney, depending on what their um, 
what their arrangement was, they would be represented by a city attorney and they would essentially basically fight out what happened in court. And at the end of the day, what is more likely than not to happen, even if that uh, officer was found civilly liable, then the taxpayer will actually pay off that particular judgment. Now, the reason that doesn't that never affects the officer, officer may have to appear for court for a day or two. But that essentially does not necessarily affect the officer because, again, it doesn't hit them in the pocketbook. Some of these folks think qualified immunity, getting rid of that will hit them more in the pocketbook. And that very well may that very well may. But you're still going to have that very attenuated stimulus between the action and the uh, and the punishment. When, in an, when, when, to be honest with you, even if we required uh, that these officers carry their particular, uh, you know, individual lines of insurance or, you know, professional insurance like we do for other fields themselves, that there won't be vexatious, uh, vexatious litigants, uh, so on and so forth. We are just assuming that. And so one of the things that we would like to see is something that more directly gets at the conduct of policing. And so one of the things I want to put a pin in for now is collective bargaining agreements. We can get to that at the end. But writ large, the easy, I would say the best, most direct ways of dealing with uh, police community interactions are, number one, training. Training is a huge thing. And it's not just training, making sure folks have DS or officers have de-escalation training. That is important, that a, that a constituent component of a good training regimen. But they also need to know how to address the public. You know, I, get, I talked to some other folks, um, I think it was yesterday, who are asking like, oh, well, in Dallas, they made these demands that the uh, the minority community needs to be treated differently. Do you think that's right? Yes or no? I said, absolutely. It needs to be treated differently, just like the Hispanic community needs to be treated differently, much like an upscale white community would need to be treated differently. This is the very this is the impossible task of civ of civilian policing is that the people that are policed are as individually nuanced um, as can be, and then we aggregate them up into these collective groups, oftentimes, uh, oftentimes falsely, and then say, how are we going to address these groups? Well, again, not all African Americans are the same. Not all Hispanics are the same. Not all white folk are the same. And their individual communities with it, within which they live are definitely not all the same. And so one of the things we need to do is make sure we have that community uh, policing uh, connective tissue, that sinew between the department and the communities with, with a police. Now, some people read that as, as community policing uh, with quotes around it. The thing is, we haven't really defined what community policing is. Some people think that means gets rid of, get rid of cars and have them walk the beat. That's not actually, uh, that's not justifiable in all uh, instances. Secondly, you also have to keep contending with the fact that simply by having an area policed can kick off issues like this, especially if there's a more, uh, law, I would say law enforcement mindset rather than a community mindset. And here's where the, the policing literature is all over the place on these results. What, what does a high crime community need? Does it need more law, you know, heavy handed law, law and order law enforcement, or does it need more of the softer, uh, I'd say community policing stuff? We don't necessarily know because each individual community is responsive to that differently. Um, and I, I, I just I don't want to I want to put a cap on this. Cause I don't want to drill in too much. But training is a very important thing that includes use of force training that includes engagement, de-escalation training. The other thing, and this is the simplest thing 
that anyone can do or any community can do if they wish to reduce police uses of force. All they need to do is have a modicum of a fitness stand. Because let's look at the use of force under Graham, the analysis of uh, the use of force, is essentially an officer is justified in not only using force, but using deadly force if they feel that their life is in imminent danger. Now, it says of an objective person. But when we talk about use of force, especially excessive use of force, that's inherently subjective. We all know that. Mm -hmm. But if you have a a smaller 140-pound police officer with a much larger suspect, the scale of force that can be used on that suspect and be justified is far higher than if you had a 230-pound, uh, 4% body fat uh, police officer and a 140-pound uh, suspect. I, I say all this to illustrate is that even having just a modicum of fitness standards would actually help solve so many of these use of force issues. And at the very least, it would help explain the analysis we use in uses of force. Is there anything that can be done on the criminal side? And do you think that when you sort of survey all the different highly publicized cases of police, you know, police killings in particular, where someone ends up dead at the hands of the police, do you think that more of these cases should be brought as criminal cases? And is there anything that can be done about that? Because isn't so much of that prosecutorial discretion? Absolutely. And, and there are prosecutors. You know, I, I did my master's and Ph.D. at the University of Cincinnati in Hamilton County who actually keep a pretty tight eye on police misconduct, especially when it comes to bringing it before a grand jury. Um, what I honestly think that we need in, to understand this, and I think that this is what gets some prosecutors a little gun shy, is that the level of understanding of the criminal justice process, even by you know some folks who uh, you know work in tangential fields like social work or um, you know psychology, is they do not understand how the criminal process works. And so we saw that um, essentially so many of these cases, in which they were bad cases, the case you know the the Floyd case, the the case in Georgia were almost as fast as humanly possible. Now that not the Georgia case, I will flag, but were delivered to a grand jury. And that grand jury then sent up an indictment. That indictment is not a way of slowing down any sort of criminal liability. It's a way of putting a stamp of legitimacy on criminal liability. That's also why we were uh, one of the things that Right on Crime has been active on is on grand jury reform to make sure that that indictment is a solid indictment so that, you know, no ham sandwiches are uh, being indicted and things like that. But we really wanted to make sure that that indict, yeah, people understand going forward that criminal, the criminal justice process is slow. It almost, it seems because we don't have a resolution immediately that justice is being delayed and therefore denied. And that's not the case. The bigger, the important thing to point out here. And I think the Floyd case is actually really good now that uh, charges have actually been um, uh, abetting charges have been fi uh, filed on the other three police officers mm -hmm. and the upgrade uh, to murder two uh, for uh, Mr. Chavon. I think it's really important to say that this is the system working and being deliberative and observing due process because we need to check off these boxes before we can skip right to the end of the game board and put these people in jail or, or deliver a more serious money. 
Another area that I have concern about is no-knock uh, entrances into homes. And we saw this with the Breonna Taylor killing. Um, and if I recall the, the facts correctly, the police were serving out a warrant on a drug charge, went to the wrong home. She was the apartment owner, if you will. Her boyfriend was in the, um, in the apartment and in the, you know, uh, in the chaos, the police shot her on what was a, uh, they, they entered the wrong home, but they entered it on a no knock. And I think that the actual warrant by the time they entered her home had actually been served on the proper, uh, the actual correct uh, dwelling. So it's all just a, tremendous tragedy but is it part of it a, a overuse of no knock entries uh well the short short answer yes uh i mean if we look at this from a legal analysis there really is very little limitation again as in with any use of force in which a no and serving a uh a dynamic entry no knock warrant would certainly qualify as a use of force under any analysis uh, but basically, since Hudson v. Michigan, you know, no knocks, if they could articulate a danger to the officers, they would do that. And then it would kick over to qualified immunity for, oh, they were serving a warrant on the wrong house. They shot her. Uh, you know, now they're now I believe the boyfriend was uh, brought up on uh, attempted murder charges for firing back, which, of course, you know, we can have a discussion on mens rea some other day. But that's obviously disturbing in and of itself. No knock raids are one of these really hot button issues, I think, in the criminal justice reform community, because there are certain, I will be the first to say, there are definitely scenarios in which a no-knock rate is not only justified, but necessary. On the other hand, I would say 95% of no-knock raids do not meet that standard. Um, right. one, of the thi- one of the analyses that you can see on this is on our website, rightoncrime.com, our uh, policing expert, uh, Randy Peterson has actually written extensively on the militarization of police and not necessarily in the abstract, oh, now they have camouflage now or before they wore blue, you know, more on the militarization mindset and how that permeates these different processes. Keep in mind, even serving a no-knock warrant oftentimes still means that they actually had time to secure a warrant. And so in that case, what kind of deci- what does the decision tree look like? where they're actually going down this list, checking off these boxes, and you know all these fail points that could have been identified, all these uh, breaker switches could have actually triggered if they had a better mindset on this. And so, but again, that actually goes back to training and it goes back to, are we actually holding individual departments or individuals uh, liable? And what is the culture of that department? And obviously, if you have a really tightly ingrained community with a police department, they will be incredibly circumspect on using such an outstanding show of force as a no-knock raid. Let's go back to the collective bargaining issue that you mentioned before, because this is another issue that has come up a lot recently. And that is when you, one thing that I think um, people would like to see more of is police departments get rid of bad cops, right? So in any, in any profession or field, you're going to have a, uh, good folks and bad folks. And the idea should be to get rid of the bad folks, right? And reward the good folks. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, even, even 
discounting issues of criminal accountability or civil uh, accountability through 1983 lawsuits, there's issue of cops just continuing to be on the force despite a bunch of uh, excessive force complaints and other things. Apparently that was a problem with the main officer in the George Floyd case. Uh, And one of the issues that's been highlighted uh, with this and other matters is uh, union contracts, police union contracts. And so there's been a lot of talk about how collective bargaining interacts with these issues. So what, what is your perspective on that? Well, I can honestly say as a, uh, as a person who grew up um, born and raised in Toledo, Ohio, one of the more hollowed out cities of the uh, Rust Belt transformation, my views on unions in general is pretty dour. Um, I think that if they should also protect people who do bad things with a gun um, in the name of other people, uh, they should be subject to even increased scrutiny. So just letting you know where my mindset is jumping off on this. You're absolutely right. Uh, the collective bargaining issue is one of the critically under, uh, I would say, under discussed parts of this um, problem. Because collective bargaining in and of itself, you, they're not entering into a union contract that says, here's the standards of qualified immunity. Here's this. They might be talking about what uh, someone's uh, provision of a lawyer would look like, but they're not essentially setting, you know, the, the, uh, the case rubric around it. What they are setting is they are setting uh, training requirements. They are setting fitness standards. There are a billion different things that can go into a collective bargaining agreement that, again, not a single one of them will be the golden, you know, the silver bullet uh, here that would address this problem or any of the other ones. But so much accountability uh, or accountability itself is killed a death by a thousand cuts in these. You know, everything from you know, allowing an officer accused of something, even if not criminal, to have, you know, 72 hours to review any sort of evidence against them. Protections that we would laugh out loud if it were afforded to a, um, uh, a criminal defendant or even a, uh, a, a civil, you know, somebody on the receiving end of a, uh, a civil complaint. You know, just things like that. These are things that we tend to see creep into these particular collective bargaining agreements. And that's why the officer who cowered behind his car uh, during the shooting in Florida is now back on the job as we speak. And not only that, but it was also that was also a uh, the union itself had actually spiked the football on that said, look, we got this guy their job back. And all the all the parents who are mourning their dead children uh, are left with a, a hollow sense of uh, success uh, for the union on that. So that being said, were I to come up with a um, a policy prescription for that, I would completely ban public sector unions. Again, not just police unions, but police, fire, uh, EMTs, all of that. None of that should actually have protection. And this this policy. I'm not the first person ever to come up with this. This comes from uh, rock-ribbed conservative Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, who had articulated that public sector unions, you know, are essentially a leech on society. And I don't think I have much to uh, much to uh, sweeten that particular pot with. Again, I don't think that uh, somebody should have protection for acting in bad faith, and we certainly shouldn't be burning additional taxpayer dollars to ensure that they uh, do receive uh, protection once they have made that violation. So I, I saw a headline from Andy McCarthy at the National Review, 
Um, and he was, uh, that apparently the article is debating this idea that the problem is systemic racism within police departments. And we often have a conversation about how that we have to get to root causes to deal with these, uh, to deal with societal issues, right? But it seems to me that this may not be the most helpful policy approach in this sense, that if we deal with police brutality as largely an issue of racism, obviously we're not, uh, you know, not going to be addressing all of police brutality because it's not all, you know, white on black um, uh, violence by any means. And it seems like what we would be doing then is we'd be leading ourselves down a path where the obvious responses is going to be more sensitivity training. But if we approach this more as in the ways that you've described, uh, you know, approach this more as good policing laws that hold police accountable laws that are meant to minimize police brutality. Don't we sort of solve both problems of if there is whatever hatred is in man's heart, if the end result is that we have fewer people being brutalized by the police, whether they're black or white or brown, isn't that a better approach from even a meta level? Short answer, yes, but let me even yes and that. It's not only it's not only that that's the issue, or I should I say that, you know, whether racism exists systemically is kind of neither here nor there to your point, because if we believe that this is essentially an issue driven by race, that erases all the personal agency that these horrific cops tend to execute and kind of click like, well, uh, you know, there's no personal accountability there because for whatever reason, that person is a racist. And that's, you know, that is just an insufficient explanation for some of these horrific, uh, these horrific events. In other words, saying if you had this, again, this agency reducing explanation, and when I say agency, I mean, personal, you know, personal agency. If you have this agency reducing explanation, there's honestly no way to even fix the problem. But let's take it. Let's drill down into some of the issues that we've already discussed here. You know, let's say that, uh, you know, you have hired or even better yet, let's say before the hiring. Okay, the collective bargaining agreement is going to influence how many and how officers are taken on. If that's not done correctly, that person or a racist could then get on the force very, very easily. Now, that person's already on the force. People start seeing trouble. They might even raise it up the chain of command. That collective bargaining agreement, that union, is going to fight to keep that person employed. Again, these are we, we, we create these systems in which the problems cannot even solve themselves. Further on down the line, we have an uh, officer-involved incident, an officer-involved use of force in which there was a uh, racial dynamic. Now, very rarely does somebody say, stop or I will shoot because I'm racist. But they say that, oh, well, there, here's society's soft imprint on that, basically suggesting that the officer's view of, say, the African-American community is one that would basically dehumanize uh, the suspect. And you know what? That very well may be. But that then is now another area why we need to train that they are not within their rights to go ahead and make these gross overuses of force. And then we could also say that if they do, then they are not subject to this particular kind of immunity. All these things take that essential threat of systemic racism and run it through a filter of all these policy failures that we have around policing 
And at the end of the day, you know, whether or not systemic racism exists within policing as a profession writ large, and to be honest with you, in a profession writ large, I do not believe that it does. Are there racist police officers? Absolutely. Just like there's racist police teachers um, and, and every other walk of life. But we have these policy failures that allow the bad apples to not become better apples or to get removed from the bushel, but just to keep the status quo as it is. And that's what we really need to um, address. On the other side of that, you know, a lot of folks and on the police side, they feel, you know, they feel embattled. They feel that they are being painted with a broad brush. Certainly you've heard that, um, you know, nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. I genuinely find, I, you know, I would say, generally find that to be true. Um, but that's not, you know, that doesn't delegitimize the fact that there is this perception in some communities. This perception, whether or not we want to, you know, pursuant to, you know, Mr. McCarthy's uh, stats, and I actually, you know, I've debated uh, Andy McCarthy before uh, in public forums, and we've had a very productive debate, us obviously coming from different sides of the issue. Um whether the stats say one thing or another, that does not mitigate or invalidate this perception within a minority community. Let's go back to what I said before is you need to have that connective fiber. You need to have that sinew between the police department, between all of the communities in its stead. And they need to have, you know, it needs to be a service. It needs, you know, a lot of, a lot of people point out that the, you know, the LA police motto, it's protect and to serve. No, it's to serve. And some of that service includes protection. And that's, I think, a better way of prioritizing how we look at this, whether it looks like whether we try to say, you know, the entire institution of civil policing is racist or not, because fundamentally, that's not not only is that not a um, a productive conversation, it's also one that the public is not necessarily, you know, has not necessarily come around on like they've come around on many of these other issues regarding the policy. Thing. So this is. <sighs> I hesitate to even uh, dignify this with a question, but we have seen in the last few days a number of people, including elected officials, uh, get behind the idea of police, you know, police abolition or hashtag defund the police, etc. Um, and there certainly are people for whom that is more of a figurative than a literal slogan, but there are also people who seem to mean it seriously. So what is your take on the idea that man, maybe we just don't need the police at all? Well, very, very simple and straightforward. Um, to be honest with you, this is very reminiscent of the uh, defund ICE pushes. Though with, with defunding ICE, it's fairly ironic because the job functions of ICE prior to its creation and even while it has been around has been duplicated, duplicated across other elements of the federal government. Um that's essentially what I think they're saying here. I looked at what the Dallas demands were. They want to defund the, or they don't actually uh, are demanding full defunding the police, but they're saying they need to employ alternatives to policing. And to be honest with you, I don't think that's necessarily a bad conversation to have. I mean, if you're going to tell me that 24 hour community centers are going to reduce crime and make neighborhoods more livable, more so than the police, I'm happy to have that discussion. I don't find that to be a very compelling case. But if you want to talk about like having a CRT, you know, crisis response teams with more of if a person's in a mental health crisis, instead of responding in a affirmatively and from the get go law enforcement stance, 
applying for more of a coming at it from more of a uh, community health stance. Those are discussions we can have. That's not me advocating for it. And they would, you know, the devil would be in the details, but a community is able to have that discussion and prioritize that if that's what it wants to do. And if that's what it wants to spend, uh, it's uh, no more than uh, 2% raised a year uh, tax money on. Um, however, if, you know, I see, you know, like again, with the demands in Dallas and some of the things we've seen here in Austin, there's these like reflexive, you know, there's, they have an idea that they think would look good, um, you know, kind of in the moment. And then there's never a step two. And, you know, society, you know, hopefully would go on beyond after their idea was actually implemented. But we would still need to talk about how that would actually look. You know, same thing with collective immunity or, you know, when it qual- I'm sorry, qualified immunity. Uh, we talk about both. Yeah, you can get rid of qualified immunity. But then what happens next? And that's the discussion that I'm trying to steer people more towards is not, you know, is qualified immunity good or bad? You know, to be honest with you, I, I think that is that is long been decided. But we have to we have to discuss what comes in its vacuum. You know, this is an American foreign policy where we can just create power vacuums all over and then just kind of let the, you know, the next administration deal with it. We actually need to live in our communities tomorrow. And so we need to be very thoughtful on how we go forward. And I think that defunding the police, while not a good idea, I think, you know, diversifying the approach to police funding and, you know, making sure they're not getting a lot of money from uh, civil asset forfeiture and these other uh, and fines and fees and these other strains that actually uh, strain community and police relations. I think that's important. I think they should be fully funded. But how that, you know, that funding should be talked about what it's going to. But none of that. None of that can be uh, considered me saying uh, get you know defund the police or to get rid of civil policing in general. Well, Derek, thank you so much for joining us for your for your third tour of duty with the Urban Cowboys. That's, hey, I'm, look, guys, I'm really glad to to be here. Really glad to come back anytime you want. And I'm looking forward to getting my uh, third uh, my third appearance tote bag in the mail. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urban Cowboys.